This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Hey, it's Guy here. So there are so many complex problems out there, and most of the time we think they require complex solutions. But what if some of those problems could be solved by simple answers, staring us in the face? Well, on this episode, how sometimes the best solutions are the most simple ones. It's called Simple Solutions, and it originally aired in November of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. What does simplicity mean to you? Simplicity for me is something that performs its function in a very simple manner. So it's really effective. Smart, a smart product need not be something that's high tech, you know. So for me, that's the definition of simplicity. This is Maleha Saneji. Maleha is an industrial designer. And she takes ordinary things like vegetable peelers or bookshelves, and she tries to make them better and simpler. But some of her earliest ideas when Mileha was still in school were maybe her most personal. So it started actually from, uh, we had a course in our study, which was designed for special needs. And um, that's usually what they tell you, that you can take any special need that you want to work on. And we will guide you with principles and guidance on how to do it. So Maleha immediately thought of her uncle, who was struggling with Parkinson's. Yeah, um, I think tremors were quite a prominent thing for him. He had to use a walker to walk. So uh, sometimes, uh, even on flat land, he needed help sometimes. So his wife was always next to him. Combined with that, he also had osteoporosis. So if he fell, it would take way longer for his bones to uh, heal. Slowly, even his uh, speech uh, changed. So sometimes you couldn't understand what exactly he was saying. So for me, those were really uh, shocking things. And I saw it deteriorate. Of course, it was over years. Yeah. But still, it was quite drastic uh, suddenly. Yeah. So, so you're thinking, I am not a med student. I am not going to be able to cure Parkinson's. But maybe there's something else I can do. Yeah, since there is no cure right now for Parkinson's, I was really like, okay, how can I make his everyday life simple? And that was my goal, to find his everyday problems, things he does, and uh, try to solve them. I guess I have always preferred simple solutions. So that was maybe something at the back of my head always, and that's why I did not choose to design one big complicated solution, but target his small needs and target different products or solutions towards it. Today on the show, ideas about how complex problems are often solved by simple solutions. Sometimes even the ones staring right at you. The elegant answers that don't require lots of money or technology. So we're going to explore some of those solutions, like how to make schools better for kids, or how to prevent disease with very little effort. Or in the case of Mileha Suneji, how to improve the day-to-day life of her uncle, especially as the symptoms of his Parkinson's got worse and worse. Mileha picks up the story from the TED stage. Well, the first thing I targeted was tremors, right? My uncle told me that he had stopped drinking coffee or tea in public just out of embarrassment. So, well, I designed the no-spill cup. It works just purely on its form. The curve on top deflects the liquid back inside every time they have tremors. And this keeps the liquid inside compared to a normal cup. But the key here is 
that it is not tagged as a Parkinson's patient product. It looks like a cup that could be used by you, me, any clumsy person. And that makes it much more comforting for them to use, to blend in. So the shape of the actual cup is is like what? Yeah, it's actually like an urn. An urn, So yeah. it's broad on top and curved. And towards the uh, bottom, it's way narrower. And so it's almost like an apple shape. I think right? it looks like a pear, like an upside down pear. Yes, right? pear. Yes, yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So it's like an upside down pear. And then there's like a there's like a wide handle on it so you can put four of your fingers in it. Yeah. Yes, four and the thumb goes on the other side. So actually, uh, the cup also has grooves on it uh, that indicate that, hey, your fingers go here. So it's in a subtle way telling you uh, where your fingers sit. So that was also a key detail that I thought to add so that uh, they don't hold the handle because it's very natural for a person to go straight for the handle. Yeah. But the idea was, no, this handle goes around your palm and you hold the cup. So. And and is it is it made out of ceramic? Uh, no, because ceramic is something that uh, could break. Yeah. So psychologically, they avoid those cups. Mm-hmm. The idea was to make it really just plastic. It's okay. So you designed this cup, which is very... Simple. I mean, I guess the idea is that because it look it's shaped like an upside down pear, it's harder for the liquid to spill out. Yeah, the liquid keeps going up and down, up and down, but the curve keeps deflecting it back inside. But the key here was also that it did not look like a cup that was, you know, designed for, for a special disabled need. person. Yeah. It was really designed yeah. for all, for any clumsy person. And that was really also a key because, frankly, my uncle or any Parkinson's patient could use a sipper, right? Like a baby sipper. Yeah. You're like, why do we need a new product? But hey, this is an adult, a confident adult. Why would they need a sipper? They need something that everyone can use. And so what happened when you brought this cup to your uncle? He was really happy. He was amazed and it really worked. I also uh, tested it with some other patients uh, that had more intense tremors. And it actually worked quite well even with intense tremors. So they were very happy to drink out of it. And did he go back out and drink coffee outside? Yes, he did. Really? <laughs> he was extremely proud and confident about it. In fact, some of my friends as well were like, hey, I'm clumsy. I need that cup. Yeah. So that was also for me a really nice moment where not only Parkinson's patients, but even other people were asking for it. So, well, one problem solved, many more to go. All this while, I was interviewing him, questioning him. And then it, I realized that I was getting very superficial information or just answers to my questions. But I really needed to dig deeper to get a new perspective. So I thought, well, let's observe him in his daily tasks while he's eating, while he's watching TV. And then when I was actually observing him walking to his dining table, it struck me, this man who finds it so difficult to walk on flat land, how does he climb a staircase? So he told me, well, let me show you how I do it. And then all this while I'm thinking, Oh my God, is he really going to do it? Is he really, really going to do it without his walker? And then this person who could not walk on flat land was suddenly a pro at climbing stairs. On researching this, I realized that it's because it's a continuous motion. There's this other man who also suffers from the same symptoms and uses a walker. But the moment he's put on a cycle, all his symptoms vanish because it is a continuous motion. So the key for me was to translate this feeling of walking on a staircase back to flat land. Okay, so imagine you look at a flat print. Uh, So it's flat, but it looks like it's a staircase. So it's a painted staircase Mm -hmm. that's extremely flat, but it's an illusion. It's an illusion, I see. It's an illusion. So the way you sketch it, it looks 3D, but it's actually just flat. So it's like an M.C. Escher drawing like of a staircase, yes. but you just, you just draw it and what, you put it on the ground? Uh, what I did is I went home and since, of course, printing a big staircase like that, it, it's complicated. You need a fancy printer. I just took A4 sheets and quickly print, uh, stuck them with cello tape. And that's actually the prototype I quickly took to his house. And I put it in his house and I said, OK, now walk on this. Wait, wait. 
Did he think you were nuts? Yeah, he did actually. He was like, "What? What? What do you?" And, yeah, uh, I actually it was really. I saw him walk on the staircase in the evening. Uh, so that was in the morning, and in the evening I was back at his house, and I was like, "Okay, try walking on this now." So he did think I was nuts. Yes. So he gets to the. He has his walker. I'm assuming, right? Because he needs mm-hmm. a walker just to walk. Yes. And he gets to this optical illusion, which is yeah. just looks like a staircase, but it's it's flat ground. And yeah. what w- what does he do? He just takes a while to get to the edge of this sort of optical in- illusion, the staircase illusion, and then he suddenly he walked on it, and you could see he even lifted his walker and just walked straight on it. Wow! So till it lasted. He walked completely fine, and then he again got back and he froze uh, when it ended. So, and that's so, so when he used his walker again. So he walked across these pieces of paper that looked like a staircase without yeah. the use of his walker, simply because it looked like a staircase. Yes. Amazing. He was amazed as well, and you could see his wife was like, "What? You walked fast on that?" So yeah. Wow, if I had a gong, I would bang the gong and I would say, that's a simple solution. <laughs> it was. We also tested it in different parts of his house just to see if it still works. And it worked quite brilliantly. What I wish to do is to make every Parkinson's patient feel like my uncle felt that day. He told me that I made him feel like his old self again. smart in today's world has become synonymous to high tech and the world is only getting smarter and smarter day by day but why can't smart be something that's simple and yet effective all we need is a little bit of empathy and some curiosity to go out there observe but let's not stop at that let's find these complex problems don't be scared of them break them boil them down into much smaller problems and then find simple solutions for them test these solutions well fail if needed but with newer insights to make it better imagine what we all could do if we all came up with simple solutions what would the world be like if we combined all our simple solutions let's make a smarter world but with simplicity why do you think we associate smart solutions with complexity I don't know the word has just transformed from its original meaning as the digital world has evolved you know the moment internet came in and everything like smart just became something that's yeah that's digital or high tech but smart was something I think a smart product is the moment it's connected it's connected to the user it's connected to a system the principle makes it complicated but the main thing is that it helps a user it's intuitive it's simple it's effective so that for me is still smart and i think the meaning has just changed leha senegi works as a product designer in the netherlands you can see her full talk including images of that staircase illusion and coffee cup at ted.com on the show today ideas about simple solutions coming up two simple ways to make kids do better at school. I'm Guy Raz and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co/cardcalculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp online therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com/npr today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com/npr. 
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about simple solutions to complex problems, like getting kids to do better at school. It's one of those challenges that virtually every city and every country faces. Some kids do well, and lots of kids just struggle. And there's no shortage of experts and analysts and policymakers and consultants who spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to solve this so-called achievement gap. But it turns out there may be one solution that's pretty simple. Food. All these other interventions that we're talking about using new technologies or innovative approaches or whatever it might be, I think are all going to fall short or at least be completely under leveraged if kids are feeling hunger pains. This is Sam Casp. He's a chef. And um, I was the former senior policy advisor for nutrition and the executive director of Let's Move in the Obama administration. And Sam's simple idea is that if schools could provide every kid with enough nutritious food, well, those kids would obviously be healthier, but their brains would also be more attuned to learn. Here's Sam on the TED stage. What do we think the connection is between a child's growing mind to their growing body. What can we expect our kids to learn if their diets are full of sugar and empty of nutrients? What can they possibly learn if their bodies are literally going hungry? And with all the resources that we are pouring into schools, we should stop and ask ourselves, are we really setting our kids up for success? Food is that place where our collective efforts can have the greatest impact. Let me give you two stats that seem like they're on opposite ends of the issue, but are actually two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, one in six Americans face hunger every year, including 16 million children, almost 20%. In this city alone, in New York City, 474,000 kids under the age of 18 face hunger every year. On the other hand, Diet and nutrition is the number one cause of preventable death and disease in this country by far. And fully a third of the kids that we've been talking about tonight are on track to have diabetes in their lifetime. Now, what's hard to put together, but is true, is that many times these are the same children. So they fill up on unhealthy and cheap calories that surround them in their communities and that their families can afford. But then by the end of the month, food stamps run out or hours get cut at work, and they don't have the money to cover the basic costs of food. Just think about how hungry a young person is because they're growing, right? They're expending so much energy because they're growing and they're learning and their brains are taking in a lot of information and we're asking a lot of them. There's no way that a kid can learn if they haven't gotten basic nutrition. Because if you're sitting there and you haven't eaten all weekend, for example, and you show up to school and literally you're experiencing hunger pains or you haven't eaten since lunch the last day because a lot of kids go home, there's no food in the house, you're not going to be able to do a math problem. So I think it's one of those starting points that we have to take care of their basic well-being before we can expect them to excel in the classroom. So when you were in the Obama White House, were you guys able to make changes to solve some of those problems? Yeah. And so one of the changes that we made was called the Community Eligibility um, Program, which allowed schools that had significant populations of low-income children to serve breakfast to everybody. As part of my work at the White House, we instituted a, a program that for all schools that had 40% more low-income kids, we could serve breakfast and lunch to every kid in that school for free. This program has been incredibly successful because it helped us overcome a very difficult barrier when it came to getting kids a nutritious breakfast. And that was the barrier of stigma. See, schools serve breakfast before class, before school. And it was only available for the poor kids. So everybody knew who was poor and who needed government help. Now, all kids, no matter how much or how little their parents make, they have a lot of pride. So what happened? Well, the schools that have implemented this program, they saw an increase in math and reading scores by 17.5%. And research shows that when kids have a consistent, nutritious breakfast, 
chances of graduating increase by 20%. 20%. When we give our kids the nourishment they need, we give them the chance to thrive. It's amazing that you, you change just this one thing, free breakfast, and it has this enormous impact on, on like health and, and educational outcomes. Absolutely. Um, test scores tell you a very clear story. And it's, this is nothing that, this is common sense. Um, we can all just test ourselves. Go two days without eating much or just eat a few bags of chips and then go take some kind of test. Yeah, and see, right. And, yeah. and see how you do. Uh, I guarantee you, you're not going to do that well. Um, kids make many more mistakes. Their cognitive ability slows down. And on the flip side, when they get the nourishment, they are much more f- proficient in solving problems, in comprehending reading. Their behavior goes up. Their stress levels go down. I mean, the other thing that happens when you're hungry is your anxiety naturally rises. You become more aggressive and unsettled. Hmm. So it leads to a lot of other behaviors that absolutely undermine the educational uh, experience. I mean, all these things are connected, right? Like if you've got a kid who is eating a high fat and high sugar diet, that's what's feeding their brain. And that's what is going to feed their behavior. And then you've got a disruptive classroom and a teacher can't teach all the kids in the classroom. Like it's all connected. Yep. And then it, it actually reverberates out even further. Then those kids get sick more frequently, which means they have to stay home, which means that their parent has to stay home from work, which has an impact on their Hmm. performance at work and their productivity. Um, And if we really focus our resources, the question is like, if we have a few dollars to spend, what's the most impact we can have? There's not too many interventions that are going to give you, you know, 15 to 20% improvements on test scores with just a relatively small amount of increase in resources and focus around nutrition. We only see upside. We only see benefit from it. I've not seen any statistic that showed any kind of negative outcome here. Sam Cass, he's a chef and the former senior food policy advisor at the White House under President Obama. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. So, Wendy, Sam Cass is talking, obviously, about food and how it could change schools. If I were to ask you to give me one idea about something that could have a huge impact on, on kids in schools, what, what would it be? More sleep. More sleep. That could actually have, like, measurable impact on, on like, how well students do at school? Absolutely, and we have evidence to bear this out. This is Wendy Troxell. I'm a clinical psychologist, sleep medicine specialist, and I'm a senior and behavioral social scientist at the RAND Corporation. And Wendy's research focuses on teenagers, so high school-age kids. And she says the results, well, they're pretty clear. Kids who get adequate amounts of sleep perform better in school. They're more likely to show up for school on time, um, have better graduation rates. They're able to think and perform better. Their attention is better. Kids who are sleeping sufficient amounts also have better mental health and physical health, um, all of which we know goes into the factors that contribute to a whole healthy child who's able to perform and succeed in school. Now, this may sound painfully obvious, right? Kids need more sleep. But it's not that easy, as Wendy Troxell explains from the TED stage. Sleep deprivation among American teenagers is an epidemic. Only about 1 in 10 gets the 8 to 10 hours of sleep per night recommended by sleep scientists and pediatricians. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, phew, we're doing good, my kid's getting 8 hours. Remember, 8 hours is the minimum recommendation. There are many factors contributing to this epidemic, but a major factor preventing teens from getting the sleep they need is actually a matter of public policy, not hormones, social lives, or Snapchat. Across the country, many schools are starting around 7.30 a.m. or earlier, despite the fact that major medical organizations recommend that middle and high schools start no earlier than 8.30 a.m. These early start policies have a direct effect on how much, 
or really how little sleep American teenagers are getting. I mean, basically what you're saying is that because school starts so early uh, for teens and they have to wake up, you know, obviously much earlier than, than that to get ready for school and, and sometimes even get to school if they're, you know, if they're walking or taking the bus. Uh, so, of course, they're not going to get enough sleep. Exactly. It's a simple math problem, right? If you have a school that's starting at 7.35 a.m., like my own child's, that means that they're getting on a bus between 6.30 and 6.45 a.m. often. So if you simply back up the clock, your child has to be going to bed by 10 p.m. at the latest. Mm. And that's simply not possible for most teenagers. But the truth of the matter is all of this is truly an artifact of a decision that was made years and years ago, frankly, before sleep research was really as robust as it is today and before we knew the consequences of sleep loss that occurs in adolescence. So we're setting them up for failure failure in their ability to sleep, and failure in their ability to perform well at school. Adolescence is a period of dramatic brain development, particularly in the parts of the brain that are responsible for those higher-order thinking processes, including reasoning, problem-solving, and good judgment. In other words, the very type of brain activity that's responsible for reining in those impulsive and often risky behaviors that are so characteristic of adolescence. In fact, many of the, shall we say, unpleasant characteristics that we chalk up to being a teenager, moodiness, irritability, laziness, depression, could be a product of chronic sleep deprivation. Around the time of puberty, teenagers experience a delay in their biological clock, which determines when we feel most awake and when we feel most sleepy. This is driven in part by a shift in the release of the hormone melatonin. Teenagers' bodies wait to start releasing melatonin until around 11 p.m., which is two hours later than what we see in adults or younger children. This means that waking a teenager up at 6 a.m. is the biological equivalent of waking an adult up at 4 a.m. So teenagers' biological clocks are delayed by by about two hours. That's correct. Sort of like how you might feel if you travel, you know, west to east and your brain still is on the on the west coast time zone, but local time says, oh, well, it's, it's locally 10 p.m., but your brain thinks it's only 7 p.m. You can't make yourself go to sleep at a time when your brain's not ready. And it's that conflict between the internal biology of adolescence and sort of clock time that poses the real problem. So th- this seems like, I mean, out of all of the problems that we're talking about on the show, this seems like the the easiest one to solve, like the most doable. You just you just change the start time of schools. You just go to schools and you say, hey, schools, you know, uh, move your start time from 7.30 to 8.30 and, and you're done, right? Yes. And I really wish it could be that easy. And yet, <laughs> and if I was only a sleep researcher, if I hadn't been involved kind of with booths on the ground in districts where we've actually tried to get this done, I would have the same attitude because it should be a no-brainer. However, the truth of the matter is start times really can have ripple effects on the entire community. So there are legitimate concerns. When you shift the day later for any group of students, you have an impact on other students. And if you're dealing with a tiered bus system, somebody eventually has to go first. um, And people are going to get out later. So there are many implications. When we shift start times, there are impacts on after-school sports and other extracurricular activities. There's issues of uh, care for younger children, both before and after school. There's also issues of after-school jobs um, and other factors such as traffic and and transportation-related issues. So as much as it seems like a no-brainer, it's not as simple as it sounds. Well, see, now I feel like you've just made a really compelling argument against your original argument. Like now I'm like, yeah, I, mean, I think Wendy's wrong. Now I'm, now I'm with the school districts here. <laughs> well, then can I tell you about the consequences yeah, yeah, of early start <laughs> yeah, times? Yeah, sure, <laughs> because frankly, yes, you're right. If it was all about uh, what's most convenient for adults, then keep the status quo, right? Yeah. But what we know is that when schools start later, one school district found a 25% reduction in uh, school absences. And now school attendance is critically important for big issues like reducing the achievement gap. 
when we delay start times, children are actually more likely to get the bus. And for many of our um, low-income students or racial and ethnic minority students, if busing is their only option for transportation, if they miss that bus, they are not likely to go to school. So when we delay start times, we see an increase in attendance rates. We also see an increase in graduation rates. This has a direct impact on their lifetime earnings. Teens from districts with later start times get more sleep. To the naysayers who may think that if schools start later, teens will just stay up later. The truth is, their bedtimes stay the same, but their wake-up times get extended, resulting in more sleep. Not surprisingly, they do better academically. Standardized test scores in math and reading go up by two to three percentage points. That's as powerful as reducing class sizes by one-third fewer students. Their mental and physical health improves. And even their families are happier. I mean, who wouldn't enjoy a little more pleasantness from our teens and a little less crankiness? Even their communities are safer because car crash rates go down, a 70% reduction in one district. The findings are unequivocal. And as a sleep scientist, I rarely get to speak with that kind of certainty. I, I feel like like this this period, like the teenage period in our lives, is is where our biology requires a specific schedule, right? Like it, it seems so obvious that we should figure this out, you know, to to change our institutions and our environment um, to accommodate that. Exactly, and. One of the things I often hear, um, I hear the comment, oh, let's stop coddling our teenagers. They need to toughen up. We need to get them ready for the real world. Mm. But that's missing the point that this is a developmentally specific issue. They don't have these shifted sleep-wake schedules for the rest of their lives. It is only during adolescence. Similarly, like if you look at how you treat sleep in your younger child – We recognize that younger children have specific sleep needs, and we honor that, for instance, by allowing them to nap. We don't say, though, well, you know, this two-year-old, well, we shouldn't let him nap because eventually he's going to be going to kindergarten and he won't be able to nap in kindergarten. We know it's developmentally specific. A two-year-old needs a nap. You know, sleep science has clearly shown that there is this change in sleep-wake cycles such that adolescents naturally go to bed later, and sleep in later. So by depriving them of sleep in adolescence, we are not doing anything to toughen them up. We're just hurting them in this critically important developmental phase. And the truth of the matter is, by trying to kind of overcome this biology and and putting a start time that's in direct conflict with their biology, we're really hurting their chances for success and their health. Wendy Troxell... She's a clinical psychologist who studies sleep. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about how simple solutions can be the answer to some of our most complex problems. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from State Farm. As a State Farm agent and agency owner, Lakeisha Gaines is passionate about empowering other small businesses. In the last several years, there are more business owners than we can count. Businesses are opening up quite frequently. And I think that shows the need, the dreams, and the desires of the community to have the independence and to have the financial freedom that's important to them. The reason why it's so important to me to be out there to share information and to educate the community is because I know that a dream doesn't always help you to be successful. You need the competency. You need the wisdom. You need the knowledge. That's where we come in as State Farm agents, our ability to be able to teach over 100 years of experience in this world to say, hey, we got you. You got this and we got this. Let's do it together. Talk to your local agent about small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about how we can solve some of our most complex problems in simple ways. So one huge problem that you probably hear a lot about 
is that every single year, millions of children all around the world die from common diseases. I think some of the top uh, main killers are diarrhea and pneumonia. So diarrheal disease kills more than uh, half a million children globally every year, more than HIV, AIDS, malaria, and measles combined. This is public health advocate Miriam Sidibe. The maximum numbers of these children are dying because of preventable disease that we can do something about. And for the last 20 years, Miriam's been working to fix this problem. And her solution? It doesn't require a new vaccine or a massive health initiative or a huge grant from the Gates Foundation. Miriam described her simple solution from the TED stage. What we can do to prevent this disease is one of the world's oldest inventions. Bar of soap. Washing hands with soap, a habit we all take for granted, can reduce diarrhea by half, can reduce respiratory infections by one-third. Hand-washing with soap can have an impact on reducing flu, trachoma, SARS, and most recently, in the case of cholera, an Ebola outbreak. Hand-washing with soap keeps kids in school. It stops babies from dying. Hand-washing with soap is one of the most cost-effective ways of saving children's life. It can save over 600,000 children every year. I think you'll agree with me that that's a pretty useful public health intervention. Statistics are actually showing that four people out of five don't wash their hands when they come out of the toilets. And the same way we don't do it when we've got fancy toilets, running water, and soap available, it's the same thing in the countries where child mortality is really high. I mean, that's pretty surprising to me that so few people wash their hands after using the bathroom because it, it seems like that idea is programmed into our brains from a very young age. Well, I, I think there's a, a couple of reasons. I would say, um, one, the environment is not always adequate. Um, so when you take a lot of the rural areas or, or areas where you know water supply is not always flowing out of your tap, it might be very difficult for you to make it a habit so routinely because having water and soap at the same place is not often there. Why is it that Mayank, this young boy that I met in India, isn't washing his hands? Well, in Mayank's family, soap is used for bathing, soap is used for laundry, soap is used for washing dishes. His parents think sometimes it's a precious commodity, so they'll keep it in a cupboard. They'll keep it away from him so he doesn't waste it. On average, in Mayank's family, they will use soap for washing hands once a day at the very best, and sometimes even once a week for washing hands with soap. What's the result of that? Children pick up disease in the places that's supposed to love them and protect them the most, in their homes. So that's one reality. Two, even though people have access to soap, and even when they have access to water, um, transforming it into a habit um, regularly is usually not found. Okay, so how do we get people to wash their hands more often? It needs to be transformed into social norms so that everybody, you know, is basically monitoring everybody else and checking that everybody's washing their hands. So it's about washing your hands before you eat, washing your hands after the toilets, and making sure that those are embedded into routines in the household. Nine years ago, I decided, with a successful public health career in the making, that I could make the biggest impact coming selling and promoting the world's best invention in public health, soap. We run today the world's largest hand-washing program by any public health standards. Over the last four years, child mortality has reduced in all the places where soap use has increased. Last week, my team and I spent time visiting mothers that have all experienced the same thing, the death of a newborn. I'm a mom. I can't imagine anything more powerful and more painful. And we know that the majority of children that actually die, die in the first month of their life. And we know that if we give a bar of soap to every skilled birth attendant, and that soap is used before touching the babies, we can reduce and make a change in terms of those numbers. And that's what inspires me. Inspires me to continue in this mission. And next time you think of a gift for a new mom, and her family, don't look far. 
buy your soup. It's the most beautiful invention in public health. I mean, it's amazing because we think about complicated solutions to big health challenges, right? But it does make sense in a way when you say that soap is the world's best invention in public health because it's it's cheap. I mean, it doesn't require refrigeration. It's it doesn't require careful transport. It can be made locally. It's it's available everywhere and it's soap. Yes, that's that's right. I mean, there's nothing fundamentally new about that. <laughs> um, but what is absolutely needed is that, you know, to be thinking about what these simple solutions can have in terms of an impact into b- big uh, public health issues. And, you know, it's not just soap. I mean, it's uh, similarly the same with toothpaste and, and school absenteeism and what do you do in terms of, of that uh, being, you know, obviously the number one reasons for children missing out on schools. And I think ultimately that is, you know, the reasons why prevention becomes so important in some of the public health problems of today. I'm, I'm going to go wash my hands after this, Miriam. <laughs> you should. And you should make sure that all the people around you are washing their hands because otherwise you'll shake somebody else's hands who's now washed their hands and it's back to the same thing. I, I know. The whole TED Radio Hour team is going to go wash their hands right now. Okay, guys? <laughs> they should. That's Miriam Sidibe. She's the social mission director for Unilever of Africa. And we reached her at her home in Nairobi. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, simple solutions to some pretty complex problems. But the thing with simplicity is that sometimes it requires a lot of complexity to get there. I agree. Right? Yeah. Because to make something simple and cheap and reliable often takes very rigorous engineering. This is Amos Winter. He's a mechanical engineer at MIT. And his research group tries to build solutions to problems in developing countries. And the common theme in all that we do is, even though it may look simple and be constructed of cheap, simple elements, the math and the physics and the engineering rigor that went into it was not simple. Like one specific problem that was presented to him in Tanzania with wheelchairs. Yeah, I spent that summer talking to wheelchair users, uh, wheelchair manufacturers, and disability advocacy groups uh, to get a sense of, you know, what the lay of the land was and how well current products were meeting people's needs. And you might think, what's the problem? A wheelchair is a wheelchair. It's already a pretty straightforward, simple solution. No. A wheelchair is not a wheelchair, depending on where you are. Hmm. Much of our country, I'd say, is ADA accessible and has been designed to meet the needs of wheelchair users. That is not the case in most other countries, particularly if you're living in a rural area. And so if you have to go a few kilometers from your house to your school or house to a job, just a small crack in the road can be a major barrier if you're using a conventional hospital-style wheelchair, which is what most people get. Typically, you would be dependent on a family member to push you around your village. Um, But actually, even more commonly, you're probably going to be stuck in your house most of the time and, and maybe even viewed as a burden on your family. Amos Winter spoke about the problem on the TED stage. What stood out to me is that there wasn't a device available that was designed for rural areas that could go fast and efficiently on many types of terrain. So being a mechanical engineer, being at MIT and having lots of resources available to me, I thought I'd try to do something about it. Now, uh, when you're talking about trying to travel long distances on rough terrain, I immediately thought of a mountain bike. And a mountain bike's good at doing this because it has a gear train. And you can shift to a low gear if you have to climb a hill or go through mud or sand, and you get a lot of torque, but a low speed. And if you want to go faster, say on pavement, you can shift to a high gear, and you get less torque, but higher speed. So, you know, the logical evolution here is to just make a wheelchair with mountain bike components, which many people have done. But these are two products available in the U.S. that would be difficult to transfer into developing countries because they're much, much too expensive. And the context I'm talking about is where you need to have a product that is less than $200. And this ideal product would also be able to go about five kilometers a day so you could get to your job, get to school, and do it on many, many different types of terrain. But when you get home or want to go indoors at your work, it's got to be small enough and maneuverable enough to use inside. And furthermore, if you want it to last a long time out in rural areas, it has to be repairable using the local tools, materials, and knowledge in those contexts. Okay, so you have this idea for 
like a, a mountain bike kind of wheelchair. And then what do you do from there? So I worked with a team of students at MIT through many iterations, trying to make this cheap, simple, you know, fast and efficient off-road wheelchair device uh, to give you a, a low gear to climb hills and a high gear to go fast. And we failed a number of times. We could not do that with the conventional mountain bike solution because you need a chain to switch from gear to gear to get those different gear ratios. Mm. And then about a year and a half later, I was actually back in Africa at a conference and I was sitting there just doodling in a notebook. And I realized, boy, you know, we could get a, a variable mechanical advantage, you know, to get this mountain bike effect very simply by grabbing a lever at different points. Hmm. And that was the, I'd say, the real breakthrough for us, realizing how we could make a cheap, simple, bike part-based solution that would be viable in this context of developing countries. Okay, so we're talking about simple solutions. So can you, like, simplify this and walk me through it? You, like, you thought of levers? Yes. Like, I'm imagining, like, like broom handles or, you know, like sticks on a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. How does that simplify things? So if you're in a wheelchair, your power source is your upper body, hmm. right? And so you conventionally, you'll grab the wheel or you could do some other motion that's engaging the muscles in your chest and shoulders. And so uh, one reason I thought of levers is because it engages the largest muscle groups in your upper body, your chest muscles. And so what was nice about a lever is if you imagine a person sitting in a wheelchair, grabbing two levers in front of them, that if they are pushing forward and back on those levers, if they just shift their hands up or down a little bit, it effectively changes the length of the lever. So the distance between where their hand is and where the pivot is of the lever. So if they grab high on the lever, they get a long lever, get a lot of leverage and get a lot of torque. If they grab low on the lever, they're able to push through a bigger angle every push, which makes the wheel spin faster. faster. So if they're in the wheelchair on rough terrain or going uphill, they can grab up the top of the lever and it's easier to get through that rocky area. And if they're on a straight path on paved concrete, they can just grab lower and go fast. Yep, exactly. So, I mean, this is not new technology. I mean, leverage and, and levers are like, this is like ancient Egypt stuff. Yeah, and even levers on wheelchairs is ancient technology. People have done many, many different iterations of that idea. The critical factor in the in the critical value of our idea was that ability to shift your hands up and down the levers. Yeah, and what's so cool about this is you're kind of taking this this old technology to something that most people would think to innovate with like mechanized changes, like making them electronic or, or, or more complex. Yeah. And again, I have to come back to the constraints of the problem we are trying to solve. You know, think about out in a village. What parts can you service this thing with? What, how would you ever recharge it if it's electric? And that's what drove us to this simple, cheap solution, the Leverage Freedom Chair. Now, also being engineering scientists, we were able to quantify the performance benefits of the Leverage Freedom Chair. So here are some shots of our trial in Guatemala, where we tested the LFC on village terrain uh, and tested people's biomechanical outputs, their oxygen consumption, how fast they go, how much power they're putting out, both in their regular wheelchairs and using the LFC. And we found that the LFC is about 80% faster going on these terrains than a normal wheelchair. It's also about 40% more efficient than a regular wheelchair. And because of the mechanical advantage you get from the levers, you can produce 50% higher torque and really muscle your way through the really, really rough terrain. I think this project worked well because we engaged all the stakeholders that, that buy into this project and are important to consider in bringing the technology from inception of an idea through innovation, validation, commercialization, and dissemination. And that cycle has to start and end with end users. These are the people that define the requirements of the technology, and these are the people that have to give the thumbs up at the end and say, yeah, it, it actually works, it meets our needs. And this picture was taken in India in our last field trial, where we had a 90% adoption rate where people switched to using our leverage freedom chair over their normal wheelchair. And this picture specifically is of Ashok. And Ashok had a spinal injury when he fell out of a tree, and he had been working at a tailor. But once he was injured, he wasn't able to transport himself from his house over a kilometer to his shop in his normal wheelchair. The road was too rough. But the day after he got an LFC, he hopped in it, rode that kilometer, opened up his shop, and soon after landed a contract to make school uniforms, started making money, started providing for his family again. 
do you do you think that that most of the time the simplest solution is the best one? I think I I think about the word simple maybe differently than you are. Mm. I think the best solution is the best solution. And I and I I'm so sensitive about imposing unnecessary constraints on a design problem. I try not to design in terms of simplicity. I try to design in terms of what is the what is the solution that will give you the required performance for as little money and as little complexity as possible. And so I think the idea of simplicity that you're touching on is is that that I'm thinking about that I don't want to overcomplicate things. I want to make things robust. I want to have as few parts as possible, but I don't want to compromise value and performance by making it cheap and simple. And so I think people will sometimes confuse like developing world technologies as low quality and cheap and not as functional. And I don't think that way at all. People have a, a, a core level of functionality they need to be met for that product to be successful. And there's a price point and there's maybe a serviceability associated with that. And those are the design requirements you have to satisfy in order to be successful. And our wheelchair absolutely does do that. That's Amos Winter. His wheelchair is called the Leveraged Freedom Chair. So far, his team has built about 2,000 of them. You can see his entire talk and the wheelchair at TED.com. This is a must to keep it simple. My complexion, keep it simple. My business, I keep it simple. The way I walk and talk, keep it simple. The way I do it, I keep it simple. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on Simple Solutions this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. You can also listen to this show anytime by subscribing to our podcast. You can do it now on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Benjamin Klempe. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing, like not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.